God's message is for all people. That is the theme that Acts has been seeking to communicate over and over and over again since chapter 1, is that God has a message, and that God's message is meant for people, and that God is desiring to show his message to people, that he has a desire to transform people's lives, and that he does so in a unified manner, so that you see God the Father with an eternal plan from before time begins, forming a plan saying, this is my message, this is who people are, and this is how I'm going to reconcile people to myself. People are separated from God because of their sin. And yet God has no desire to leave people in that place where they are separated eternally from him because of their sin. Rather, he has a desire to reconcile them and bring them into a relationship with himself. So how does God reconcile people who are lost and living in complete rejection of who he is and his laws with himself when he is perfect and without comparable ability in our natural world? The only thing that can bridge the gap between you and God, between your sinfulness and between God's holiness, is the fact that God is working with the other members of the Trinity. And as a result, Jesus Christ stepped into the world some 2,000 years ago and lived a perfect, sinless life. And after living this perfect, sinless life, he was taken to the cross and he was crucified for your sins and for my sins. He paid the penalty for your sins. And through him now, you can be declared righteous. Not because you are good, but because he is good. Not because you have done good works, but because you have believed what he has said. And now the Holy Spirit is working in the midst of believers and promoting and seeing this message go forth. That God planned before creation. That Jesus Christ accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit now pushes and propels that message forward. And you see that in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. In those verses, you see the Holy Spirit using people to take his message to others. And so the Holy Spirit is mentioned a number of times. And it shows the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who is central in the story of God's message of salvation advancing. And as the Holy Spirit takes the message of God and advances it to people he desires to see come to salvation, the message specifically comes to two different people, a Jew and a Gentile. The Gentile receives the message of Christ while the Jew rejects. And it's a major turning point in the book of Acts. It's continuing to develop 
this idea that God has a desire to see all people come to salvation. Not just his special chosen people from the Jewish nation, but from all people. And so as you and I think about this passage, I think that you'll see as we read through this passage, this passage and as we meditate upon it, um, that the theme is you and I must reach the lost to advance God's mission. Why? Because that's God's desire. That's God's mission. God's delight is found in people receiving his son's gift of eternal life. And so it's going to require that you and I adjust what we delight in so that our delight becomes his delight. And as your delight is in alignment with what God delights in, you and I will be better equipped and better servants for the Lord Jesus. If you want to take your copy of God's Word and let's read together. Acts chapter 13. We'll start in verse 13 and we'll read through verse 52. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law of the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about forty years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about four hundred and fifty years, until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem, and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people, and to declare to you glad tidings, their promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, 
as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that though this man, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy, and contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. When Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. <clears throat> But because you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified in the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you choose to advance your mission, and you do so through pray that you would help us to better understand your desire and your delight of bringing people to salvation. We pray that as we understand it, that if we have not received that wonderful gift of forgiveness of sins, and the ability to stand before you knowing that our sins are not what you see us by, but rather you see the righteousness of Jesus when you see us, that you would help us to humble ourselves to seek your forgiveness for our sins and to place our faith in your finished work. We pray in addition, God, that you would use this passage to transform our thoughts, to transform our desires, to help our affections be drawn towards seeing the people that you put in our lives who are unbelievers come to know you, because that is what you delight in. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word shows us who you are. We pray that as we as we read through and work through this passage, you would help us to love you more as a result of our time together. In your name we pray. Amen. God's message is for all people. 
As the text begins in verse 13, you see what's happening. God's message goes to the Jews first. In verse 13, the disciples arrive and they're leaving from one place and they're going to another place and they arrive in Antioch in Pisidia. And when they get there, what do they do? They go to the synagogue. This has been Paul's practice. He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because this is where people already know some foundational aspects about God. They know that there's sin. They know that sin separates them from God. Why do they know that there's sin? Because the people in the synagogue know the law. They know that there are numerous things and numerous ways in which they can break God's law, and in so doing, they alienate themselves, they separate themselves from who God is and from God's plan for their lives. They know that there's only one God. They know that there's forgiveness of sins through that one God. These people have an abundance of knowledge, an abundance of an understanding of who God is, of who they are, and of their problem, and of the solution that is available to them. And so Paul goes where people already have some basic understanding of truth. And he approaches these people who are God's chosen people. And as he goes there, his, his plan is to tell them the rest of the story, so to speak. They understand the law. They understand that there's sin. They understand that they need to be made right. They don't understand how that is accomplished through Jesus. And so he goes there and he takes the message to them. But notice that as he goes there, he's, he's going to proclaim in the, in the following verses that there's forgiveness of sins. That there's righteousness available through Jesus Christ. If you remember, what are the Pharisees always seeking to strive for? They're seeking to live righteous lives. Why? Because they think that that righteousness is something that they can accomplish in their own actions. And Paul comes and he tells them, no, righteousness is available, but it's not available through your own actions. It's available through the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. He's telling them that there is peace with God. But notice that the text doesn't end with the message of God simply being proclaimed in the synagogue. Notice who is included in this worship service at the synagogue. Verse 15 records that you know these people are focusing on the Word of God. They're reading the law. They're reading the prophets. They're looking for encouragement from God's word, from God's people. Notice how they read through the law, they read through the prophets, things that are going to tell them what not to do, things that are going to tell them about the hope that is coming for their nation. These are people who are far off from Israel, far from where God will fulfill the promises that they would read about in the prophets. And here are some guests that enter into their synagogue, and they're like, do you guys have any words of exhortation, any words of encouragement that you could share and Paul gets up and he's like, yes, we do. Actually, there's Jesus. And through Jesus, all the things that you know are problems because of the law, all the things that are promised hope and blessing and peace in the prophets is available through none other than Jesus Christ. Yes, there's words of exhortation. Yes, there's words of encouragement. And as he begins presenting this message, look what he does. He says God's message is not only for the Jews, but for anyone who 
verse 15 concludes, Men and brethren, if you have, or sorry, verse 16. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hands at men of Israel, can you who fear God listen? Notice he's addressing two different groups of people. He's not describing the men of Israel as those who fear God. Some of them do fear God. Some of them don't. As is going to be evident as we continue to make our way through the passage. He's addressing two different groups of people. Those who are Israelites by birth and those who, as they've interacted with their Israelite friends, co-workers, maybe even they're married to some of these people, they hear about who God is. That there's one true God. That this one true God has the right to make rules about how you live your life. And if you disobey those rules, you're in extreme danger of his condemnation. And they hear that he has a plan to somehow make people right with him once again. And this is an attractive message. It's, it's scary because God says he's going to judge, but it's also hope-filled because God says he's going to provide a means for them to escape the judgment that they deserve. So he addresses them and he says, this message is for all of you. Listen to it. God's message is for all people. And the text begins with that foundational idea. Why? Because that's one of the primary things that Luke is seeking to communicate to the early church. God's message is for all people. All people need this message of forgiveness, of righteousness, of peace with God through none other than Jesus Christ. And so he introduces this message to all people. He tells them, you must all listen. But then as he continues to develop, he says salvation is available through Jesus. This is where the message all of a sudden for some becomes something that is hostile and something that frustrates them. See, salvation is available, but it's an exclusive offer. There's only one way to receive this salvation. It's not available for anybody and for everybody. Whatever hears it, it's available for those who receive it by faith. And notice how he develops this argument. As he begins, he, he says, God has faithfully delivered Israel time and time again. In verse 6, 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt with strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. He says, God's chosen you guys. You guys are a special class of people. This is the group of people that God has chosen to show his grace and his mercy through. This is the people who God has shown his mercy and grace to time and time again. Remember how we were in Egypt? And God came and he gave us Moses and Moses was used by God to deliver us and redeem us from Egypt? of the fact that God is faithful and that he delivers and that he redeems people, that he restores people. He goes on and he says, that's, that's just the ice, top of the iceberg. There's more to it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. We sinned. God redeems us. He brings us out. And what do we do immediately? We immediately began as a nation sinning and rebelling. 
Lincoln Scott, what does he do? He bears witness. For 40 years, these people live in rejection of God, in defiance to God. But notice God's compassion, God's mercy, God's grace, as Luke pictures it, and as Paul pictures it for us. Verse 19, And when he had destroyed seven nations of the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. God continues to demonstrate grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy. He takes out the seven nations that are in your land. He takes them out. He conquers them, and he gives you the land. Verse 20, and he gives them judges for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, what happens? This nation continues to reject God. God's given them judges and says, these judges are supposed to lead you. They're supposed to guide you. Follow them, and you will be blessed. And they stand up, and they're like, no, we want to be like all the other nations. Give us a king. What does God say? Okay. And he gives them Saul, the son of Kish. And for 40 years, he's king. But he rejects God and leads the nation also in rejecting God. Not as bad as some of the future kings were. And so God takes him away. And then God gives them David. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. He says God has guided them through various servants, and he has provided the nation. So God's guiding them. He's guiding them through the wilderness, He's guiding them through the time of conquering the land. He's guiding them with the 450 years of prophets or judges leading up to the prophet Samuel. He guides them through the time of 40 years with Saul as their king. He guides them while David is their king. God is guiding them. But then he provides salvation for all people. Notice what verse 23, from this man's seed, talking about David, he says, according to the promise, God raised up a savior. And he's going to go on from there, and he's going to further develop this idea of who Jesus is. Right here, his, his focus is on the fact that Jesus is a savior for the nation of Israel. But as he continues to develop this theme of Jesus as savior, Throughout the remainder of his time talking in the synagogue, it becomes clear that God's plan is not simply to save the nation of Israel. God's plan is to save the entire world that will come to him in faith through this Savior, Jesus. It talks about John and how John looked on and realized that Jesus was something truly remarkable. He breaks once again. In verse 26, and as he breaks, notice what he does once again. In case you missed it, in verse 16, in verse 26, he repeats the same idea. Who is he speaking to? Who does he have a desire to hear him? Is it exclusively for the Jews? No. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you, God. Hey, Jews, hey, Gentiles, 
listen, this message is for you. This message of salvation, these, these words of exhortation that the, the synagogue leaders have asked for, this is for all of us. God has a desire to save through none other than Jesus Christ. And he's going to go on, and as he goes on, he's going to highlight how this is available. He says, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. And then he tells about how Jesus was killed. Notice how he articulates this. He, he's going to talk about the authority of God's word. And the fact that God's word demonstrates that this is what's coming. And how these people, they're just like these same Jews here in this synagogue, who every week are reading the Law and the Prophets, but they completely miss it. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. This, this man was sinless. There was no reason to kill him. But the people rejected him. Why? Because they were willingly blind. They heard God's word repeatedly, but they rejected God's word. They rejected God's word. They had it presented to them, and yet, despite having God's word presented to them, they chose to reject it. He says that's what's happened here in Jerusalem. And so they kill him. But he notice he's, he's also highlighting the fact that, that God's word tells us that Jesus is going to die. Prior to Jesus actually dying, he says God's word knew and told us that Jesus was going to die. Why? Because this isn't some plan that just kind of happened as it happened. You know, sometimes we just kind of go with whatever is happening, right? You just kind of have to adapt your plan as the plan unfolds. But not with God. Not with God. His plan is set from eternity past. It's not changing. He told us what the plan was. And they rejected it. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Notice... Jesus is dead. You don't lay people in a tomb after they've been on a cross for hours without them being dead. He's, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus indeed did live. That he was sinless. That he fulfilled the word of God perfectly. That he died and he was laid in a tomb. That he was dead. But does the story end there? Paul says no. This wouldn't be a word of exhortation if I told you there was salvation, but the one who provides salvation died. There's no hope then. How do you have peace with God when the Savior, who's supposed to restore your relationship with God, is dead? There is no peace. There is no hope. And so he goes on. He says, But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. For his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings that promise which are made to the fathers. 
God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Because God's raised him from the dead. He is no longer dead. Why? Because he's not simply some other man. This is God. He came and died for your sins. He died for my sins because there is no way that I could pay for my sins. There's no way that you could pay for your sins. But then he rose again, proving to all of us that he is who he but he is indeed God. And so he's raised, and that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He says, this is truly marvelous. Salvation is available to all people, and it's available to all people because of who Jesus is. He is God. He's the one who's been given incorruptibility by God. He's unique. He's different from all the other saviors that God raised up. Moses was a great savior. Think of what Moses accomplished for the people of Israel. They are in slavery. Hostile, bitter, anguish. They're in such bondage the king of Pharaoh could come and simply take their sons as they're born and kill them. And this nation of many, many people is powerless to do anything to save themselves. I'm, as, as I am a dad now and I look at that, I'm like, like, I would have to be in like the most pitiable state ever. To allow somebody to come and take my child and kill my child. Like, you have to be just completely beaten down without any hope of ever overcoming that situation to allow your child to be killed. Like, these people are without hope. And Moses comes and rescues them. And he leads them in 40 years in the wilderness. They march into Canaan. They're unskilled. They have no training in battle. And what happens? God uses people like Joshua to deliver this land to them. All these great saviors, but he says all of them die. David himself, who's man after God's own heart, dies. But Jesus does not die. He's incorruptible. Why? Because he's different from all the others. He's not simply a man. He is God. And you can't reject what he's done. Because rejecting him is rejecting God. Rejecting God means eternal punishment in hell. Seeing salvation is available to all people. It's available through Jesus Christ. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. This man has preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes in him is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that what has been spoken of the prophets come upon you. Behold, he despises, marvel and perish, 
For I work for working their days, a work which you will not, by no means believe, though you were to one were to declare it to you. Notice as he concludes, he specifically highlights two different ministries of Jesus that are completely unique and different from all the other saviors that he's talked about as he exhorts these people. He says, none of these other people could forgive your sins. None of them could. Moses could come and he could give you the law and say, here's 600 plus rules that you'll definitely break. But it just shows you how hopeless you are before God. Better long for and believe that God's going to provide some way out of this because you're in a big mess. And then the judges come and they try to encourage the people and motivate them to live for God. And what happens? Time and time again, God works miraculous victories for them. And a few years later, what? Backwitting and sin. None of those people could forgive their sins. Saul sinned, but he couldn't forgive his own sins, and so God removed him from power. None of them could forgive their sins. None of them could get righteousness before God. Why? Because none of them could live up to the law of Moses. Some may be better than others, but none of them would be righteous before God because they'd all sin. And he says, through Jesus, you can be forgiven of your sins and you can be declared righteous by faith in him. He says, this is the word of exhortation that I have for you. But it also comes with a warning. God's work must not be rejected. Look at verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken of the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which will you will by no means believe, though you were, one were to declare it to you. He says, it's possible you to be just like people throughout history who saw God's hand at work and choose to reject it and don't do that. God has a desire to save all people. God's saving ministry is available through Jesus Christ for all people. But if you choose to reject it, you will face eternal consequences in hell. Do not reject Then he concludes and he says, God's people embrace and rejoice in his provision. Notice verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached on the next Sabbath. And when the congregation had broken out, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, one who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. This is just the introduction of the response get up and they give this bold proclamation of how God's working in this exhortation that Jesus is the one to whom we've all been longing that the law has been pointing to that there is one who can break the bondage of the law, that the prophets have promised that there is hope and there is peace through one who is to come. And he says, this is Jesus. And the Gentiles are leaving and they're like, can you please please tell us more about this? And the idea is it talks about them following them. And, and sometimes the Bible uses that language to uh, imply like a long-term following, like they're following in that path. This is not the idea in this context. The idea is Paul and Barnabas are done talking. They're tired. They're going to the next place to do the next thing that they physically need to do. Like they're going to get lunch. 
And so they're walking to the lunch joint, and these Gentiles are following them. Just questions. Like, hey, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more. And they're like, yeah, we'll tell you more, but we're going to keep going to our next place. Like, we're hungry. And as they go, ultimately what it comes down to is follow and obey God. And so that's the response. The initial response is just great uh, joy because the Word of God is accomplishing its mission. You see that in their response. The following Sabbath, verse 44 picks up, and it tells us that our Jews reject the mission and message of God publicly. Not all of them, but the majority seem to reject the mission and plan of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. When the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. The following Sabbath, the Jews reject the mission and the message of God publicly, but God delights in bringing his salvation to all people. Notice what they do. They say, okay, if you're going to reject who Jesus is, if you're going to reject just like the people in Jerusalem did, what the law and the prophets have spoken, you guys read it yourself. Every Sabbath you read it. But it doesn't change your hearts. Your hearts are still cold to the truth of who God is and what he's accomplished for you. We'll go to the Gentiles because that's God's delight. Look at even what the Old Testament says. God's word says in the Old Testament, I have set you, the nation of Israel, as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. That's my desire, to see my glory, my name, proclaimed around the world. I am too great of a God to be worshipped just in Israel. I must be declared everywhere. And Paul and Barnabas are like, you don't want this exhortation, we'll take it to them. They're excited to hear it. They so desperately want to hear it that we're on our way to go get lunch or whatever they're going to go do, that they're following after us, pestering us with questions. This is the idea. These people have a great hunger for God's word. They understand what God is doing. And Paul and Barnabas are like, if that's how God's working, then that's how we're going to work. We want to be on the right side of history. We want to be with God. But see, God's mission advanced. And so when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised the persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it neat how Luke does that? I kind of love how Luke always is bookending stuff for us, helping us to see themes by concluding and using key words. How does the passage start in Acts chapter 13? Acts chapter 13. 
as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, in chapter 12, or chapter 13, verse 12, then the proclam, uh, sorry, not uh, verse 12, but um, the Holy Spirit fills Saul. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? You see how the Holy Spirit is guiding this whole time? He is bringing people to salvation. Why? Because God delights in bringing salvation to all people. The Gentiles rejoice in the character of God and embrace his free gift in Christ. But it's also very, very helpful for us to notice the disciples' response. How do Paul and Barnabas respond? They're facing persecution. It tells us that. In verse 50, raised the persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they just shake off the dust from their feet and they go on to the next city. Why? Because God's working. It's not about Paul and Barnabas. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about following the Holy Spirit. It's not about you and I. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about following the Holy Spirit. And so the question for you and I is, do we delight and do we love what God have we received the gift that Jesus Christ offers? You are a sinner. And left to your own merits, you will die in your sin and you will face eternal punishment. But God has no delight in punishing. God delights in saving and showing mercy. And he says that that's available through none other than Jesus Christ. And so the question for you and the question for me today is have we received that message and then is our life demonstrating that same great delight in what God is accomplishing here in our own lives? Are our lives characterized, are our lives marked by a desire to see God's word advance and be shown to others? I believe that that's what Paul would want you and I to be challenged with. I think that Luke is very carefully crafted Acts chapter 13 to point to us that this is God's mission and God's advancing his mission. This is what God delights in doing. And if you're somebody who claims to delight in God, then you and I should delight in doing and seeing what he delights happening happen in our own lives. <coughs> That's going to require that we get out of our comfort zone, that we, we make friends and that we tell friends things that may be edgy. It may isolate us from other people. But through that, God is glorified. And so as you and I think through the application, God delights in saving, and you should delight in seeing people saved. That's who God is. That's what God delights in doing. God delights in using flawed instruments to accomplish his mission. And we are the Lord's servants, and so the victory and the battle are not ours, but they're the Lord's. I was talking with a, a member earlier this morning, and um, somebody had passed away, and um, neither of us expected that individual to have come to Christ, and in fact, kind of expected that they wouldn't have. As I was talking with them, they, they told me that their 
hospice nurse had actually shared the gospel with them and they'd come to Christ and then the hospice nurse was the one who actually did the service at the funeral. See, God delights in saving people. And God delights in using people like you and I to accomplish that mission. Are you and I going to humble ourselves and follow God as he leads in seeing people come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that your word is true, that it tells us who you are, that it helps us to know you better, helps us to love you better, and even helps us, God, to know how to serve you. We pray that you would help us to be people who seek to advance your name, because that's what you delight in. We pray that you would help us to have passions and desires that are transformed by you as we see what you love that it would help us to love the same thing. We pray that if there are people here who have not received your gift of salvation, that you would humble them and that you would bring them to salvation. God, we know that you delight in saving, and we would delight in seeing people saved this week. In your name we pray. Our closing song is A Passion for Thee. If you would stand with me as we sing. Thank you.